We'll open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3. We finally arrived after weeks of looking into the darkness, the prevailing purpose of the Apostle Paul's writing, the writing of his letter, it, it's returned, and which was to preach uh, the remedy for our sin. If you haven't been with us, we've described these first three chapters of, of Romans like, like descending down into a, a dungeon, and now we're about to come out of it. We, we stand at the door, and we're about to open that, that door, and we had this torch that was given us to to light the darkness in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is, is revealed. And we've walked together through this dungeon of human depravity. We've beheld the sinfulness of man which was represented, we said, in these like three proverbial cells. We, we found ourselves in, in there as well. Men suppress the truth that's around them and in them from creation and the, the conscience inside in chapter 1. They, they pervert the truth in religion and morality in chapter 2, and we're all under sin. We're all in bondage to sin in, in chapter 3. And, and with all that guilt, we've, we've been to court so we're, we, we just got out of court in Romans 3, 9 through 20. The, the evidence was, against us was presented from the Old Testament by the a prosecutor, the Apostle Paul. And Paul answered the question, how many human beings, Jews or Gentiles, are righteous? And verse 10, the answer is there is none. Verse 11, there's none. Twice, verse 12, there are none. Four times, none is used. And on the positive side, the question's also asked, how many people, Jews or Gentiles, are sinners? And the answer to that is found in verse 9 of Romans 3. It's all, all have sinned. As well as in verse 12, all, and verse 19, all. None are righteous, all are sinners. And Paul, the prosecutor, unleashed these 12 universal indictments that God brings against all human beings. And, and he summarized the, the, the source of what we already went over in chapters 1 and 2. All human beings after Adam are spiritually ignorant. There's none who understands. We're divinely uninterested. No one seeks after God. We've all sinned both in word and in deed and... Um, we're indifferent. We're, we don't even care. There's, there's no fear of God before, before our eyes. And Paul says in all of that, we're not just guilty, we're godless. We're, we have a hatred of God's righteousness and an unalterable love of, of sin. And, and after that, all of that, the evidence that was presented, there was no defense. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3, Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, all that it just got done saying, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. There was silence in the courtroom after God's word spoke. 
And in that silence, there was a verdict given. That's the verdict at the end of chapter 19. Every mouth was stopped and all the world is now guilty before God. And with those words, our, our condemnation was, was complete. And at that point, after looking at everything that's in these three chapters, we have nothing to expect but God's judgment, which Paul told us in chapter 2 would be without partiality, wouldn't matter who we were or how religious we were or our background, and it would be according to deeds. It would, it would be a righteous judgment. And so with that sentence passed, we're, we're led back up the stairs from the dungeon and we're, we're being led to judgment. And now at the end of verse 20, it's like we, we've climbed back up the steps and we're standing at the, at the, the dungeon door and we're about to open it and we're, to head, we're about to head to the gallows. What awaits on the other side of that door, this, this door we're, we're about to open? We know what should be there. It, it should be the, the full wrath of God that we despised and rejected. But what is there? Look at verse 21, because this is what's on the other side of the dungeon door. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. When the executioner grasps the handle and he pulls open the door expecting to be led to the, to the scaffolds, we find there is a promise of pardon waiting on the, the other side. I mean, and instead of hearing the, the drum calls of execution, the bagpipes of amazing grace are playing. People are singing how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I mean, we find on the other side of this dungeon door a righteousness provided by God and offered apart from the law, flooding through the door with, with blinding light. I mean, it is the very righteousness that, that we need as someone guilty and someone condemned by the very law. It's, the, it's a righteousness that we cannot generate ourselves. We cannot earn ourselves. Look at what it says in verse 22. For there is no distinction Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the, the glory of God. We find on the other side of this door a righteousness that provides a complete and utterly different verdict than the one we currently have. Verse 24, look at verse 24. Here's the verdict. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We, we find a righteousness on the other side of this door that's given to us, that's, that's gifted to us, a, a righteousness that comes from outside of us, a, a foreign righteousness, credited to us by free and sovereign grace and one that provides full redemption. And as our eyes adjust to this breathtaking light, we... We look a little farther and we see the executioner's tree that we anticipated, where we, where we thought we were going to be walked. And, but there, where, where our noose uh, was to be dangling, we, we look and there's someone already hanging there on our rope with the record of our sins pinned. 
to a shirt. Look at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, meaning he didn't immediately judge them. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the the righteousness of God in his justice. That's what's described in the second half of this passage. The God who demands a judgment that is just, the Holy One who cannot look upon sin, is fully vindicated in His saving of people who didn't earn it because someone else was judged. And in in the substitution, we see that God is both just and He's the justifier of those who put their full faith in Jesus Christ, who is God's way of providing righteousness to them. And that's the scene before us today. I mean, we've been down in the dungeon so long, the the stench of immorality from chapter 1, the stale and empty air of religion that doesn't save in chapter 2. I mean, the light is so blinding, the air is so pure, our eyes and our lungs can, can hardly take it. But there it is. God's way. His only way of righteousness. In all of its beauty, in all of its glory, and that's what this text reveals. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through, through 26 is called the, the heart of the, the letter of, of Romans. It's all of the, that for the reason that I, just, that I just mentioned. In verses 9 through 20, what we just came out of, that shows us where our sin comes from. It, it comes from within. Our sinful deeds, Jew or Gentile, are sourced in our depravity and we're totally depraved. Now in verses 21 through 26... Paul turns the coin over, if you will, and shows us where God's righteousness comes from. The kind that we need to enter heaven, provided the way he must grant it in order to remain just. To say it plainly, the righteousness of God is given and revealed in the cross of Jesus. You see, everything that we've been walking through in Romans up to to this point, from verse 18 through of chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, it's all preliminary. I mean, I mean, it's all to establish the need for what Paul is going to teach us about right now, what he's going to show us right now. You don't understand chapter 1, 18 through 3, 20. You don't understand your sin. You don't understand the depth of your sin. You don't understand that there's no way out. Then this is just going to ring hollow. But if you have listened, you know you're locked up. An execution is coming. You, you might think of it just like a really long parenthesis. And now he picks up where he left off back in chapter 1. I mean, do you remember God was revealing two things before we went into the dungeon? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And in verse 18, then he immediately said, The wrath of God was also revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. So the righteousness of God is revealed and the, the wrath of God is revealed. And then he says, let me show you the wrath. And he took us there for, for three chapters. Now he brings us back to the righteousness of God being revealed. How is it revealed in the gospel? The gospel is good news. Why is it good news? And so he brings, back, brings us back to explain how and who God's way of righteousness is 
is provided. It's, it's the main point that Paul wants to establish in his letter, the availability of God's righteousness to all who come in faith alone or come by faith alone. Doug Moo said, Paul is not just showing the, the sin of all human beings. By implication, he's showing the, the saving promises of God have not been fulfilled through the keeping of the law. Since both Jews and Gentiles fall short of God's glory, they're still falling short of God's glory, and the target is God's glory, and in fact, it cannot. And so the dilemma is how is God going to fulfill His promises? He promised to save, and Jews and Gentiles, even after the full Old Testament, are still falling short of God's glory. How is He going to fulfill His promise to, to save? And that's what Paul shows us here. God has fulfilled His promise to save through the, the death of Jesus Christ. And His saving righteousness is now available for all, both Jew and Gentile. And it's available to you this morning. Tom Schreiner calls it His judging righteousness and His saving righteousness. Or I think it's just a fancy way of what, what we would say as His mercy and His justice. His, his grace... And his, and his justice are, are both merged together in the cross. You can see both the grace of God and the justice of God in the, in, in the cross. And both of those are part of His righteousness. They both meet in the cross. His saving righteousness is revealed because believers are now vindicated through the death of Jesus. His judging righteousness is displayed because Jesus took upon Himself the wrath of God that the whole world deserved. That's what this passage teaches We'll not get through all of it this morning, but let me give you the outline of the whole passage. It reveals three ways God's righteousness is revealed in the coming in the cross of Jesus. In verses 21, verse 22, God's righteousness is, is publicized, it's put on display. Secondly, God's righteousness is then provided by gift, by grace. Verses 22 through 24. And then God's righteousness is proven. You might think it's demonstrated, and that's in the cross, verses 25 and 26. And the first one is found in verse 21 and 22. Look, if you would, at verse 21. The way, the first way God's righteousness is revealed is it's publicized in the coming and the cross of, of Jesus. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. I mean, Paul says the, the, the righteousness that, that we need from God to get into heaven is apart from human merit. It's, our slide's not coming up there, guys. It's apart from human merit. It's in Christ's coming, verse 21. There it is, right there. It's apart from human merit. It's in Christ's coming. And it's foretold in the Old Testament, and it's available through faith alone. I mean, that's what he covers under this first point. The righteousness of God is publicized. And that's very different from what we can produce on our own. I mean, Paul does this contrast in dramatic fashion. I mean, it's almost overwhelming. I mean, he starts with, but now, and... And his first verb is a perfect. And then it's just peppered with all these prepositional phrases. 
all the way through. And it ends with that he is both just and the justifier. I mean, this is not diluted truth. I mean, this is compact. And, and we're going to try to, to, to unleash it. Paul starts with, but now. I mean, after, after three chapters of whiffing at the ball, three chapters of condemnation, here is God's answer to the human dilemma. Here is God's remedy for our lack of righteousness. And, and he begins by by stating two things about God's remedy for our predicament. It's apart from the law, it's apart from human merit, and it's been manifested in the coming of Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss something very obvious here that's right in front of you, but Paul says it's God's righteousness, not ours. It's not the result of being good or religious or, or doing the best that you can do and it's from God and it's given to us. And he says it's, it's what the Lord uses to justify us. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the word righteousness is used four times in this section and justify is used four times. And they, they're, they're different words in English, but, but they're very similar in the Greek. There's the same root. They emphasize the same idea of, of rightness. In Jewish thinking, to be righteous meant that there is a right and there is a, a wrong. And so there was a verdict that was given. In the end, you are right. You're, you, you line up on the, the right side, if you will. So you might think of these words in two ways. Uh, one is a record given, like I am righteous, and the other is a declaration, like a verdict from a judge. You're justified. You're declared right. And Paul says in God's plan of salvation, both of these come apart from the law. It, it comes apart from human merit because it's not something that we can produce ourselves. That should be evident. After the last three chapters, God's righteousness, what we need to enter into heaven, what we need to be right with God, doesn't come for what we can produce. It cannot be manufactured by you. It, no amount of works can add up and equal to it. Uh, I mean, you realize the significance of this statement, apart from the law. I mean, it, it almost seems like something that you just pass right over, but it is like vital. But now, apart from the law. Paul just got done showing us the, the radical corruption we possess. We are sinners by nature, and he showed us that in two chapters, it's, that it's impossible for us to earn righteousness through religious works or morality. So God provides a righteousness apart from the, the law. And that's the fundamental difference between Christianity and all of the other religions of the world. All the other religions of the world say you can become righteous. You can receive that verdict by some religious system or, or doing good things. But that's what, what Paul's been doing and why he spent three chapters and belabored the topic because he knows that what is in the human heart is we think that we can do that. And so he, he wants to break us from that delusion. And having been broken with the, the sentence standing at the door... Based on our condition, we realize there is no way we can gain righteousness by the law. And so God has now revealed His righteousness apart from the law. One writer said the, the mere existence of a righteousness apart from works gives us hope. I mean, there, is, there is such a thing? <laughs> yeah, there is. 
I mean, you, you see how unbelievable the plan of God is here? I mean, God found a, a way to give us what we desperately need and maintain His integrity as the judge of the universe and the lawgiver. We've broken His law. And after seeing God's holy character and our sinful condition, I mean, the question that must be, be answered is, how can God solve this dilemma? I mean, we've already seen we can't solve this dilemma, so our only hope is in God. How can God solve this dilemma when He is holy and just and the lawgiver and we break that law? And there's nothing that we can do to change that. I mean, what system or plan could He ever devise to bridge that kind of gap? I mean, He must judge sin, but God desires to show us mercy. I mean, both of those things. His judgment of sin and His mercy is, is wrapped up in His character. I mean, Exodus 34, when God reveals Himself, the Lord, the Lord, the, the merciful or gracious and compassionate God, you know, slow to anger, forgiving sins and transgressions of thousands. He's front-loaded with mercy, but He will not allow the guilty. The guilty by no means will go unpunished. So how can God, how can this God forgive us? Without condoning our sin, while punishing sin at the same time. Paul says the answer is by providing a righteousness apart from the law. The solution to the quandary won't be solved by more law. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. Think about how it is saying it's Jesus, but then we want to add all the sacraments or we add more law. You, you, you do all these things in order to be right or stay right with God. When we can't keep the law, all that does is increase our guilt. It, it, that, that's not a gospel. It's a horrible thing. It must be solved another way. And it was. By directing His wrath toward Himself. And in that way, providing a righteousness apart from the law, His righteousness. The dilemma was solved by pouring out the full measure of the wrath that we deserved on His Son. And then by providing His Son's righteousness to us, thereby God's holy character is not compromised and He is able to forgive us. And that plan is what is displayed in the coming and the cross of Jesus Christ. His mercy and His justice in the person, in the work of Jesus. And Paul says that's now been manifested, meaning that Christ has, has come. Look at verse 21. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or, or displayed. I mean, it's the idea that His promise has finally arrived. He made a promise to save the law does nothing but condemn. That's not the way He's going to fulfill His promise. We're still falling short of the glory. Now God has actually provided His own righteousness apart from the law, and that's upon us. It's, it's here. It's finally arrived. And it's not an it, but a who. The word manifest means to publicly show, to bring into view, to lay open in full sight. Jesus Christ laid open in full sight the righteousness of God and God's plan in order to, to provide that to people. God's way of righteousness is laid open in full view. It's a perfect passive verb, meaning it stands with its effects. And in the person of Jesus, God's bring, God brings His righteousness to the scene in salvation history. The coming of Christ means that He's arrived. And we know He's talking about the coming of Christ because in verse 22 He says it's through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So how is God's promise of to save, how is his righteousness manifested in the life of Christ? How is that put on public display? I mean, how is God's saving righteousness and judging righteousness publicly displayed by, by Jesus' coming? What's the whole point of the Gospels? I mean, the Gospels were written in order to manifest that, to, to publicly display that. You have there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, and John. They weren't written to reveal um, the philosophical teachings of Jesus or, or so you could do WWJD, but to show how God brings the righteousness we need at this point in human history and displays it, demonstrates it. And we walked through part of that on Thursday night. Wasn't Thursday night beautiful service? Jesus Christ, His work and ministry is not something that began 2,000 years ago, but it was something not, it's not something that's made up by, by Him or His followers. It's something that fulfilled a promise that God made a long time ago. And it was fulfilled in history. And the birth of Jesus Christ brought God's righteousness into the world. It manifested it, and you could go to any gospel. You think of the gospels like a whole story, and, and, and there's a beginning, and there's a ministry, and, and there's an end. Don't, I, mean, I understand there are parables and wonderful teachings there, but, but the purpose is to... It, these things are written that you might believe, that you might see, that you might understand that there's a righteousness that's been provided, God's righteousness, through the person of Christ apart from the law. We preached the Mark, so my mind went to Mark when I was just thinking through this. I mean, Jesus, as we said on Thursday night, he's introduced as he steps forward as a substitute for Israel in the wilderness. He, and that's what's happening in the baptism. And John the Baptist is preaching; he's a prophet, calling Israel to repent of their sin. And Jesus steps forward in their place to fulfill all righteousness—the righteousness of God. The Father and the Spirit accept him. The voice from heaven says, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased." And then his ministry is inaugurated in the temptation. His, his first act as a substitute. I will be the one. I will step forward. His first act is to return where it all fell apart at the Garden of Eden. The Spirit drives him in the wilderness, in a desolate place with the evidence of the curse all around him, and he successfully resists Satan's temptation, something that Adam and Eve failed to do. He accomplished what they failed at. And then his ministry is launched. Right after that, uh, his ministry is to proclaim to sinners that, that they can hide in him and prove that he is the Messiah, the suffering servant. So he begins to preach this good news in, in Galilee. L- listen to what he's preaching. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's before you. Repent and believe the gospel. And he spends the first year and a half preaching that message. Three years of ministry, the first year and a half is preaching that that message. It's manifested. The righteousness of God is, you see here, it's apart from the law. And and he calls followers to follow him as king. In Mark 2, he has the power. He shows he has the power to grant kingdom forgiveness. I mean, one of his first miracles is he heals a paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, only God can say that. But Jesus can say that because he's God. He, creates a, he shows he can create a new man out of an old one in this righteousness apart from the law. Matthew, the tax collector, is now a disciple. In Mark 3, he's Lord of the Sabbath and the law and the, the Pharisees of officially turn against him. He chooses his 12 apostles and 
multiplies his message and commissions them. And he's rejected by, as a false teacher by the scribes from Jerusalem. In chapter 4, he, he, he talks about how his, his message, this kingdom message, is not going to be received by all. He does that in the parable of the, of the soils. I mean, why are so many people rejecting him if he is the Messiah, if he is the righteousness of God provided outside of the law? Well, he explains the kingdom is going to unfold slowly and people will not respond in mass because the religious leaders have rejected him. And from that point, he only speaks in parables and to the masses and gives greater insight to the disciples. And then comes the miracles, comes the signs. The signs are to show who he was, that, that he is the manifestation of the righteousness of God. In Mark 5, the... He increases the, the multitude of signs. He's Lord over nature as the sea is stilled. He's Lord over the demonic realm as thousands of demons are cast into the swine. He's Lord over disease and death as Jairus' daughter is raised. And in Mark 6, the curtain falls on his Galilean ministry and he'll spend the next year preparing his disciples for his death as they journey for Jerusalem, toward Jerusalem. And he sends the twelve out on mission, to multiply his message, and then the miracles increase in proportion. 25,000 are fed with bread from heaven, showing he's greater than Moses. And in Mark 7, he, he shows he's the Savior of the Gentiles as well. He takes the disciples out of the promised land to Tyre and Sidon to preach the gospel. He's not just the Messiah of the Jews, but the Gentiles. In Mark 8, he formally rejects the Pharisees and says this generation refuses to believe in the face of so many signs. In contrast, the disciples then confess him at Caesarea Philippi, like the hinge point of the Gospels. Everything up to that, he's showing he's the Christ, he's the Christ. They confess, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they still didn't get it all. So Jesus has to come along and says, you're right, and this is what the Christ will do. I'm going to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Mark 9, there's glory following suffering, so the transfiguration, he transfigure, he's transfigured before them. I mean, all of this is, is the, the righteousness of God manifested. It's, it's displayed in, in time, in history. He continues teaching them, marching them toward the cross, which is where they're headed the, the whole time. And Mark 10, the third and final preview of his death, and Jesus declares he's going to Jerusalem to be delivered over the religious establishment who will condemn him, hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and spit on and scourged and killed. When you think about it, it's not a, a, a really good recruitment brochure, is it? I mean, come on, guys, let's go to Jerusalem and die. Your leader that you're following, I'm going to die, and you are too. You deny yourself and follow me. But he does that because that's why he came. The righteousness of God is provided apart from the law, not becoming little disciples and following the teachings of Jesus. This teacher must die. And so Paul says in verse 21, at his coming, God's promise of righteousness is plainly recognized. It's, it's displayed. I mean, if you want to be right with God, this is the way. And he even says it's not even, not even a new truth, but, but an old truth. It's not just in the Gospels. Look at verse 21. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested in the, the life of Christ. And it's also being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's foretold in the Old Testament. 
I mean, God's way of righteousness is apart from human merit. It, it comes through Christ in the moment of Christ's arrival. And it was something that was foretold a long time ago. That's what he's saying. I mean, Paul says the saving righteousness has been promised and witnessed to by the Old Testament. That's what he means by the law and the prophets. Paul just got done showing us the exact same truth about our sin, and now he shows us the same truth about Jesus. I mean, having a sin nature is not new. I mean, every quote from verse 10 and 18 of chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one, all that comes from the Old Testament. I mean, total depravity is not a New Testament doctrine. It's a, it's a Genesis 3 dogma. It's, it's there, and God's promise to provide His saving righteousness is not new either, apart from the law. It was never going to come through the law. I mean, that's the entire point of the, of the Old Testament. I mean, God has promised the righteousness we need since the garden. He's echoed it, and, and He's repeated it ever since, and He's traced the way that He's going to bring it from the garden all the way up until Paul's preaching right here. Adam and Eve were, giving a, were given a covering by God, a, a, a promised seed that would come, and Noah was placed in the ark by God, an ark of safety, shut in by the Lord Abraham was declared righteous by faith long before the law ever came. He's promised a seed that would come and all the world would be blessed in that seed. Moses and Israel were, giving the, were given the law to, to see the holiness of God, that there's right and wrong and a sacrifice and atonement had to be made. I mean, this is the point of the entire Old Testament, to witness of what Paul is preaching about right here. The prophets foretold this of a suffering servant who would come. And if I had to pick one old place in the Old Testament to say, if someone said, okay, show me where the Old Testament witnesses to this righteousness that's coming apart from the law, where would you take me? And I would take them to Isaiah 53. And I want to show you how clear that promise is made. So why don't you turn back to Isaiah 53. Just give you a taste of how clear this promise and plan is that God was going to provide a righteousness apart from the law in the person of Christ. I mean, this prophetic passage about the Savior begins all the way back in chapter 42 and it goes through chapter 57. So, I mean, we, we look at chapter 53 because that's like the, the center of it, it, it crystallizes it. But, it, but it, it stretches for 10 chapters, 116 verses, uh, 3,621 words, each prophesying of the, the anointed one, a servant of God who's going to come in a very specific way. Chapter 51 and 52, there's a call to listen, awake from sleep and depart. At the end of chapter 52, this work of ser the servant is presented. And look at verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold... My servant, now attention is drawn to this servant that he's going to describe in Isaiah 53. And look at verse 53, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our witness? Who has believed our report? And the question is asked, who is going to believe this report? Who's going to believe the witness? And here's the witness. You see this actual description of the Savior, what He's going to look like, what He's going to be like, and how He's going to come. 
And here's the testimony of a prophet. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look at him. He'll be born in lowly circumstances. Talks about how it'll come. He'll grow up before him. That's before God. He'll, he'll be under the radar as far as human beings are concerned, but, but never out of God's eye. He's not going to come the way that you would anticipate. He has no stately form or majesty. The King James says comeliness, he, meaning no beauty, no appearance. There's nothing striking about him. Oh, wow, that's one. He's going to be the deliverer. He's not like, not like um, Eliab. This means that he'll be not exalted royalty or wear king, kingly robes, but come in lowly form. He'll not present himself as the king. The point is that we wouldn't have picked him. We, wouldn't have, we would have chosen a great warrior or somebody who is, can, can show me how to keep the law. But God's servant is, is lowly. The Lord Jesus ate with sinners, touched the unclean lepers, lifted up the head of adulteresses. He knew the people that others wanted to forget. He, he did things that a proper religious king just would not do. And in the portrait of Isaiah, he's acquainted with grief and sorrow. He'll be despised and rejected. Look at verse 3. Here's the witness. A man of sorrows, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Um, no one knew who he was, and most that heard of him rejected him. He preached in Galilee. Do you realize that Jesus only has 12 genuine followers by Mark 6? And he's rejected by his own town. In Nazareth, his family comes to Capernaum to try to seize him and lock him up, thinking he's crazy. He could do no mighty works in Nazareth. He's rejected by the Jewish people. He came into his own, his own received him not. He was, he, 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 even his miracles that they couldn't deny, they said, that's a work of Satan. They attributed it to the devil. He sorrows, weeps over Jerusalem, who hid their faces. He was mocked, accused of things that he didn't commit. I mean, the crowd that sang Hosanna last Sunday showed up to watch him die later in the week. When given a choice between him and a known sinner, Barabbas, he was rejected in the place of a murderer. And he was on the cross, they mocked him there. If you're the son of, of God, come down and save yourself. He was despised, he was rejected, a man acquainted with rejection. But Isaiah shows not only what he'll be like, but, but what he'll do. Here's the witness. God will provide a righteousness for himself apart from the law. Here it is in the Old Testament, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This verse transitions from, from who he was to what he'll do. He has borne, or he himself bore, is a, is a prophetic purpose, uh, prophetic perfect Stated in the past tense, meaning that it's, it's as if it's already happened. And the whole work of the gospel is presented here through the, through the rest of Isaiah 53. The substitutionary crucifixion, the, the burial, and the victorious resurrection is all presented. Verse 5, it, he was wounded, literally pierced. He was bruised or crushed. He was scourged and, and striped. He, he was oppressed and afflicted. 
Isaiah 52 verse 14 said that his appearance was marred more than, than any man. Listen to the Gospels. Listen to Matthew 26 that describes this actually happening. Matthew 26 verse 67. Then they did spit in his face and buffeted him and others smote him with the palms of their hands. Matthew 27, 22, and they all said to him, let him be crucified. In Matthew 26, or 27, 26, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And verse 28, they, they stripped him. Verse 29, and when they plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand and they they bowed the knee before him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him. The second time Christ was spit on, once by Jews and now by Gentiles, representing the two delineations of the world. The whole world spits on the, the Son of God. They took the reed and smote him on his head. And after they did that, they mocked him and they took the robe off of him, put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 7. Look at his response. He was silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Listen to Matthew 27, verses 13 and 14. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer a single charge. So the governor marveled. In another place, Pilate said, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? And I have the power to release you? And Jesus answered nothing. Verse 8, Isaiah, here's the testimony of the prophet. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living, meaning died. There's his death. It's a substitutionary death. And now here's his death. And here it is fulfilled in Matthew 27. When Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. Look at verse 9. His grave was assigned with the, with the wicked. His grave was assigned with wicked men. And Jesus was crucified between two criminals. The religious leaders tried to align him with thieves. But even they testified of his innocence. And one of them proclaimed him as Lord, as deity. Listen to Luke 23. One of the criminals who was crucified was hurling abuses at him, but the other said, Do you not fear since you're under the same sentence and condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we're receiving what we've deserved for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Isaiah 53, verse 9. Look at verse 9. Not only was his grave assigned uh, with, a, with wicked men, he was with a rich man in his death. Jesus was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Listen to Matthew 27. And when the even was come, the, there was a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciples. A disciple, he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. And what was the purpose of all of this? Does Isaiah tell us? Is this just some vague prophecy that we're using the New Testament to put in? Was there 
I mean, can you see that there is a, the righteousness of God provided apart from the law through this suffering Messiah there? Yeah, indeed. Why did the Son act as the servant and do such things? It was all for the passion of making atonement for sins, back in verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity, our chastisement, our peace. Verse 6, all of us, everyone, all, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord, here it is, laid on him the iniquity of us all. And there's your guilt described. You have sinned, you have gone astray, you've fallen short of, where, of the path that you ought to be on, you've stepped over the lines in the path, you've transgressed, and you're corrupt in heart, your iniquity, your rebellions. You've willfully rejected your Creator and have purposely turned your own way. And yet here is Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, bearing all of that sin. And He shoulders the consequences and wrath of us all as God's provision. The phrase, God laid our iniquity on Him, means that God treated Him as if He had committed every sin ever committed by every believer, even though he was perfectly innocent of that sin. That's substitution. So that the wrath could be spent and justice satisfied. And once that took place, so he could give to the account of sinners the righteousness of God, treating them as if they had only done the righteous acts of Christ. That's justification. And the Bible says he was acceptance. Here's the Lord's acceptance of his sacrifice. Well, he did this work. Did, did God accept it? Look at verse 10. Here's the acceptance. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. I mean, this is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. I mean, it should take your breath away. I know you're just like getting a theological fire hose from Romans and the Gospels, but I mean, this one, I mean, it should stun you. I mean, it says the Lord was pleased, and He was pleased to bruise or crush His Son. Do you realize this is the same word for pleasure or pleased that's used in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, which says... When God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, therefore repent and, and live. You put those together, God takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner, but He took pleasure in the death of His own Son for the sinner. And this portrait of the servant's life climaxes in His passion on the cross and His death, and God was satisfied. Here is exactly what the ministry of Jesus starts with. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I will be satisfied in Him. And Jesus, all the way through, He declares it on the cross. It is finished. And God receives Him in the, the resurrection, showing that He's satisfied. His wrath is appeased. Sin's fire is put out. Verse 10, if He would render His soul, that's Christ. As an offering for sin, that's yours. Verse 11, he will see it, that's God, 
and will be satisfied. That's propitiation by atonement. The son was successful. Two times in this verse, uh, this, this verse, God's pleasure to bruise him. And look at the end. It says, uh, verse 10, He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Notice it's future tense. It shall prosper. He shall see. He will see. How can he see something when he's, once he's dead? I mean, he's dead. The Lord crushed him. He's, 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 he's numbered with transgressors. He's buried in the ground. How does he have a future? Well, he has a future because he rose. And that's exactly what this is talking about. Because of God's work and God's pleasure in him, the Lord will resurrect him. God will resurrect him. That's what verse 10 is meaning. It says... He shall see his seed, that's you. He shall prolong his days, that's future. He was offered as a sacrifice, he was bruised, and now he has a future because he'll rise from the dead. You know, my friend Boaz is Jewish. I sent him a Passover note on Friday. I said, may your Passover blessings turn into resurrection rejoicing. And I quoted Isaiah 53 to him. We had many discussions about the Lord, and the last time we were with him, uh, Dr. Rick Holland asked him, he's trying to probe. He, he said, you know, you're studying the New Testament. I mean, if you could ask God one question, Boaz, what, what would it be? I and mean, what would the one question be that, that you would ask? I mean, you know, maybe not just one, but what, what, what kind of bubbles up to the top of, uh, of your list as, as you've studied? And, and he paused there for a minute and kind of pondered, and, and he said... I would ask him to explain the Trinity. How God can be one and three, three persons. And I thought that's pretty good. In fact, I said, well, if, if he answers you, let me know and tell me what he says because I'd like to understand that too. It's beyond human comprehension. But during that same conversation, he said something else that, that gives me the idea that he's getting it. Unsolicited. He said, you know, if I was going to describe Christianity... Uh, in one word, you asked me one question. If I was going to describe Christianity in one word, it would be the resurrection. A Jew said that. He says, because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, then none of it's true. Everything in the New Testament hinges on the resurrection, to which I said, you're exactly right. But if he did rise, then he's God. And you're almost there, my friend. Isaiah says the same thing. The resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was his servant. He accomplished his purpose, providing an atonement and rescuing sinners, and that he accepted him. And if you'll come to him, you'll not have a, a dead sage, you'll have a living Savior. I mean, follow any religion in the world, my friend, and, and you'll follow a holy man or an unholy man who's dead. But Jesus Christ is alive forevermore, and if you'll look to Him, you'll be alive forevermore again one day too, because death's coming. And God will confirm His same work in you by, by raising you from the dead one day if you're in Him. And look how verse 12 ends. God will rightly exalt Him. Therefore, I will allot Him a portion with the great... And he will divide the, the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. And there 
because of this great work that he does, I will allot a portion with the great Christ is at the right hand of the Father at this very moment at a place of honor waiting for the trumpet. And when he returns, he'll come for his portion, which is the church. And then later in the coronation of, of the king of the universe, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why? Why will they do that? Why will Jesus be the center piece of heaven? Well, this verse tells you. Verse 12, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's you. And God will glorify Jesus for all eternity because he is the lamb that was slain for sinners. And 700 years before he came, God prophesied that that he would do all of that It was witnessed, the whole purpose of the Old Testament, the testimony of a prophet, 70 years after he comes. Paul says he is God's saving righteousness placed in full view. The promise has now arrived. It's a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness provided by God. And now 2,000 years later, you sit here before the Lord, hearing about that righteousness so that you might believe. And so back to where Isaiah started. Here's the testimony. Who believes the witness? Who will believe? A report. Or in the words of John in the Gospels, these things are written that you might believe. You may believe. And believing in Him, you might have life in His name. All the words of God... Four Gospels, his portrait and work in Isaiah and many other places are there so that you would be able to behold and you would be able to believe. Your failures in life, this mirror in Romans 3 is to show you that you have no hope of producing righteousness in yourself, no hope of attaining it, adding it up, of doing things. And so you stand at that dungeon door knowing that you're going to the execution. And God flings the door open with glorious light and says, but now there is a righteousness provided by me, by God, apart from the law. And it's in Jesus Christ for all who will believe. How do you get that righteousness? You believe. Will you believe? If you do, you can get the declaration of righteous. He'll justify you even though you're not righteous. But there's only one way, and you have to come God's way, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Won't you bow your heads? Father, what a, just a, a deluge of glory and truth and amazing grace. It is a sweet sound to people who know they're sinners. I can just image in my mind walking up those steps, condemned, expecting to hear the the drums hear the bagpipes 
and to look in the distance and see my Lord hanging there on a tree with my sins pinned to his jacket. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our substitute. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you provide a righteousness that is apart from the law. Thank you that it is freely available to all who will repent and believe. And I pray this morning as believers we would rejoice. And I pray that if there's anyone who is still trying to gain righteousness on their own, that today they would stop. And today that they would look to Jesus and be saved. It's in His name I pray. Amen. Just stand. We're going to sing Crown Him with Many Crowns. Sing it to the Lord. Crown Him with many crowns The Lamb upon His throne Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns All music but its own Awake my soul and sing Of Him who died for Thee And hail Him as Thy matchless King Through all eternity Amen, amen. He is risen. Praise the Lord. Don't forget, no service tonight. Uh, Enjoy the afternoon with your families. And um, next week, if you're with somebody who's lost, uh, share Christ with them. Father, we love you. We pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.